to welcome you this morning. If you're a guest with us, we're certainly glad that you are here and glad that you've chosen to worship with us here at Westgate this morning. In the pew backs there in front of you, there's a little communication card. We'd love for you to fill that out. Bring it by the welcome desk, uh, right out the connection desk out there in the foyer after the service, and uh, we'd love to meet you and get to know you. And at this time, if you just remain standing, I've asked Ricky Roy if he'll come and read some scripture and then lead us in a time of prayer. everyone this is from Romans 5 it says therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God and not only that but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope this hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, glorious day and this blessing of a time we have to come together as a church and to fellowship and to worship your holy name. Uh, no one probably likes to pray for affliction, Lord, and um, you know, when we read the news and we look at the news, and it, it seems like there's always suffering and affliction going on all around us, Lord, but you know, we, we learned about Jonah today, and we learned about running from you and, and how it just doesn't work, and we learned that affliction from your word here, that affliction builds character, uh, and we know that Jonah's life was changed, the lives of the sailors in that boat were changed, uh, and the lives of the people of Nineveh were changed. So uh, again, Lord, we, we've got to understand and help us to understand that when we go out and do these things, when you send us to places that are hard, or you ask us to do things that are hard, Lord, it's for our own good. It builds our character. It makes us more like Christ, and we should, we should be so excited about that. So as we have the uh, Make a Different Sunday coming up, Lord, and as it says on our slide there, 
when we knock on those doors, you're changing the hearts of the people on both sides of that doors, of those doors, Lord. It's, it's for us and it's for them. And in doing so, we can change the world. And we just ask that you continue to make us strong, give us strength, give us encouragement, uh, help us to remember that you're with us during those afflictions. Uh, and just please help continue to shape us for your will. In your name we pray, amen. Let's remain standing for this next song as we sing Glorious Day.
Voices, sing that chorus one more time. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, 
because only you are worthy of praise. May Jesus be magnified in this place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is for a boy between 9 and 11. I'm in a place called Katakush, just outside of Mosul. This is a, a church that was completely destroyed uh, by ISIS. As we were coming through, one of our team uh, discovered one of the Operation Christmas Child shoe boxes. I don't know who gave it, who sent it, but uh, it touched the life of a child at one point. And of course, we ask people when they pack a box to always pray. You never know where that box will go. Claimed in Acts 13, 47, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. We live in a broken world, an evil world. Yet Jesus gave us orders. He said, go into the world and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have a job to do. When we talk about going to the ends of the earth, we're talking about shoebox gifts that are taking the gospel to the hardest to reach areas of the world. If you want to bring hope to a broken society, it's the gospel. And Operation Christmas Child is not about passing out toys, it's about the gospel. Each kid, when they receive that box, they're gonna hear the presentation of the gospel clearly. They make a decision for Christ, and then they're trained and equipped to go out and share their faith with others. And many times in areas where it's an unreached people group, 
The Bible tells us the time is now. We're in the South Pacific. I want to reach these islands for Christ. These are poor areas. People don't have any hope. People don't come here. There's no tourists here, but we're going to be here. I'm right outside of Mazlan, Mexico, about six hour drive up in the mountains with Operation Christmas Child. This is where people that are brave are taking Operation Christmas Child to the ends of the earth. We need boxes that are packed by families, by churches and groups, but we also need boxes that are packed online. When you build a shoebox online, these are the boxes that give us access into hard-to-reach places of the world. We go at great lengths, great effort, to take these boxes to children in the most remote parts of the world. It's an incredible journey. You know, the mission of Operation Christmas Child never changes. Children are coming to Jesus. Children are coming to faith. Children are being discipled. And children are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So beginning today, you can pick up your shoebox. It's out there in the foyer, and you just grab one of those, take it, fill it up. But did you hear there's more than one way that you can do this? You can actually build a box online also. The unique thing about those boxes online is that those are specifically designed to go to hard-reached people groups, people groups that are very difficult to get to. They, they have specifically in those boxes things that not only protect the partner that's delivering the box, um, but also the child that receives it. So there's different ways that you can give, different ways that you can support this ministry. I, um, David and Lisa, if you'll just wave your hands over here, they head up this uh, this t ministry that we have here at our church and that we send off, you'll need to have your boxes back or you'll need to have your online box completed by November 20th, which is our harvest banquet weekend. And so that Sunday, have that, have your box back or have your box online completed by the 20th. Great ministry. This is going to be a wonderful time. Kids, it's children's time, so you can already begin to make your way down here. But uh, I want you to encourage kids, encourage your parents Get one of those boxes and to build a box together as a family, okay? Come up here with Raymond and have children's time. How are y'all doing? Good to see you guys. So what would you think of that video? It was a good video. What did it tell us? Operation Christmas Child packing some boxes. Where are those boxes going to go? That's right. We can't get there. And they're kids that they're not like us in that they don't have money. They live in a very difficult situation and they don't have the opportunity to hear about Jesus on a regular basis. Today we're going to be looking at something in the book of James that is really important for all of us to remember. Sometimes we think we're more important than other people. Have you ever done that? Sometimes we think certain people are more important than other people. I remember when I was a kid, we would play baseball and we would play kickball and we'd have all these different games and we would pick up teams. And we would have two guys that would be the, the coaches and they would be the ones who would pick, the captains of the team. And we would all line up against the fence and they would start picking us one by one by one. And then there was always one kid that was the last one to get picked. How do you think that kid felt? Kind of sad. You feel like you're not as good as the other kids. And I was that kid one time. I was playing with some other kids that weren't my friends, and they didn't know if I had any ability. And I was the last kid to be picked. And I felt so bad. And the book of James tells us that we need to be very careful that we don't treat other kids like that where we make them feel bad. And so I think this video that we just watched is a perfect way for us to practice exactly what the book of James tells us. That we can make these other kids that we saw on this video feel very special. How many of those boxes do you think we should do as a church? 700 million. 700 million. Okay. <laughs> we, might, 
we might come up a little bit short on that. Let's, let's shoot for a goal. Now we have 106, 16, 106 boxes out in the atrium. How many of those do you think we should do? All of them. Okay. Do you think we should do any more than that? Well, we learned something really new here, didn't we? That you could actually do one online, so you don't actually have to have a box. So if we're going to do 106 boxes here, how many online boxes do you think we should do? 1,000. How many? 50 more? I think that's a good idea. What if we did 150 altogether? Wouldn't that be good? And if we go over that, that'd be even better because every one of those boxes reminds kids that they are just as important as we are and they get to hear about Jesus. So let's pray for that, okay? And you remind your parents about this. You can do it together. We'll all do it together as a church and then on the harvest banquet, we'll be able to celebrate that we have helped other kids know about Jesus and to know they're just as important as we are. How about we pray, okay? Lord, it's amazing to see the ministry that is taking place uh, through Operation Christmas Child. Lord, we think about Ellis just sharing with us a few years ago how his life was completely changed, living over in Albania, feeling so detached from the world, feeling so isolated and alone and unimportant, and you changed his life through that box. Lord, we know there are millions of kids out there waiting to receive that message. Help us as a church to be a very small part of that, but a very important part of that. For each of us to help those kids recognize how important they are. Lord, we think about even all that has taken place in the Ukraine, and all the war that is there, but to know that so many of these boxes will be going right into the Ukraine this year. So help us to all do our part, and not just in Operation Christmas Child, but as we interact with people every day that we would never make anybody feel less important than ourselves. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you all for coming down and visiting with me. What's your question? Can you put money in the boxes? Mr. David, right over here, will tell us how much money we can put in there. How much? important for us to know we can't give them money because then some kids would feel more important than other kids wouldn't they if one kid got like five dollars another kid didn't get any money but you can put ten dollars in there to help out with the distribution of the boxes good questions all right thank you all let's go get those 700 million boxes packed I want to thank you for a, being a church that is so involved in so many different ministries and that you, you do so much. You hear about something like that and it's just a tip of the iceberg of so many things that are going on at Westgate and, and you make that happen. Thank you as a church family for being so attentive to gospel concerns. Uh, on October the 16th, we're going to go back out into the community again. It's, uh, it's time to get mad again, as Ricky was praying about earlier. We'll be going out into the neighborhoods and uh, we'll be trying to visit a thousand homes again so we can pray with people, invite them to a church and introduce them to the gospel. Uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you, when we went out back in August, uh, it was the most miserable experience of your life? Would you just stand up for a second and just help us to, to be convinced that we shouldn't do this? Well, probably nobody because I didn't hear from anybody. But conversely, would you stand up if you went out in August and it was a very rich experience for you? Yeah, I think everybody that went out, it was a rich experience. And I want to encourage all of us. Thank you guys for doing that. And, and uh, it was a time in which a lot of people had scheduling conflicts and couldn't go. But we want to invite all of you to go out. And uh, let's not make this a big deal. Last time it took us six weeks of ramping up and talking about it and explaining it. We now know the drill. And so the door will be out here next week. And then the next week we'll be going out. And let's just be reminded 
that this is something that God has blessed us with, the, the opportunity, the responsibility to go out and share. Uh, also, for those guys who haven't gotten into a group yet, we still have room for you if you want to be a part of the study of what are my spiritual gifts, and not just to become more knowledgeable about that, but how you can implement your spiritual gifts in the kingdom of God through the church ministry here and through the kingdom of God at large. Well, today we'll continue our series, Family Resemblance, and we're going to be talking about this issue of judging and favoritism. Again, remember that James was probably the, the very first book of the New Testament that was written, and he was writing with the intent. And just, just remember the context. James was a pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and then persecution erupted, and they were scattered to the ends of the earth. And once they were scattered and gone, as a pastor, he wanted to stay connected. He wanted to encourage them. He knew of troubles and difficulties that they were facing because they were out in a hostile culture. And so he wrote this letter with the intent to remind them that your faith, our faith, all of our faith in Christ should make a difference in the way that we live. It's a very practical book. It's the most practical New Testament book that there is. Practical holiness is what we call it. And James doesn't hold anything back. He marches us right into the hard hat area of Christianity. We're reminded to put on our hard hat, march in there, and see what God has called us to do. And he's obviously addressing some problems. You know, it's ridiculous to talk about problems that don't exist. And so everything that we see in the book of James, he is responding to something that he is aware of that's an issue in the church. We've read this last week in the book of Hebrews, going through the Bible, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, this tendency, this, this propensity for us as Christians to drift. So James is saying, I know that there's some drift in some areas of your lives, and so I want to bring you back to where you need to be. And this morning we're going to be talking about dismantling prejudice. It's found in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Prejudice is knowledge without knowledge. Now that sounds redundant, doesn't it? But prejudice is knowledge without knowledge. It's feeling as if we have the knowledge of somebody without really knowing them. Knowledge without knowledge. Making decisions without all of the facts. And as James walks us through this passage of Scripture, he's going to help us to see the directions of, of what he is saying. That we are not called to be partial, but to be impartial as Christians. That we're to dismantle prejudice. One of the biggest surprises for me as a 63-year-old man is to see prejudice as hot and burning as it was when I was a kid. I grew up in Arizona, Sierra Vista, Arizona. It's right next to Fort Huachuca military base. And so when I went off to school, our, our schools were so diverse. We had kids from all over the world, all different ethnicities, and we, we came together. And we just didn't understand all the racial divides. And I would have never dreamed that all these decades later we would still have prejudice and issues just burning so hot in our culture. But the reason is, we try to dismantle prejudice the wrong way. And James says, here are the directions. Here's how you dismantle prejudice. But you need to heed the warnings along the way. And then he gives us some powerful tools for doing that. So what are the tools for dismantling prejudice? Let's look at it together in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. First of all, he says, let's read the directions. We're talking about this issue of prejudice. How do we, how do we, how do we address it? My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. As you hold on to your faith... There's no room for prejudice. You're either going to hold on to faith or you're going to hold on to prejudice. We were in the prisons yesterday. And one of the speakers kept on saying, you need to throw things out of your life. Throw them out of your life. And James is saying the same thing. If you're going to hold on to your faith, there's not room to hold on to prejudice as well. For if a man wearing a gold ring and, a fine, and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made them distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You know, a lot of us don't like to read directions, but James insists that we must read the directions and the directions for dismantling prejudice and directions for life are found in God's word. Acts chapter 10, verse 34, we read about Peter 
who had been called by God to go to the Gentiles, and he went to the house of Cornelius. And as he went through that experience, and when the Gentiles accepted Christ, he began to understand, and he said, there is no favoritism with God. That would also be recorded in Romans chapter 2. And in the book of James, Paul would say there's no partiality with God. This, this idea of favoritism is only found in Christian literature. It's not in culture because it doesn't make any sense in culture to say don't play favorites with one another. This is a demonstration of it playing out in church. Apparently, and this is, this is an actual situation. James is not trying to be hypothetical. He's looking and saying, I've heard of these experiences. You may have heard of it among the Christians that he's writing to specifically. And a guy walks in, and he's wearing a gold ring. Interesting enough, in Roman culture, you could go to a shop, and you could rent all the bling that you wanted just to portray that you're rich. So you could go in and write, buy, rent all of this stuff, like you're going to prom or something, and you would appear to be extremely rich. And James says, here's this guy that walks into church. He either is rich or he appears to be rich. And you say to him, you come over here and sit in the nice seat. Now, we're gonna, we're gonna, it's important for you to know the word he uses here is synagogue. We're going to go back to that because he's writing to Christians who understood what a synagogue was. And in a synagogue, you would have the, the, the places of seating on both sides. And in the middle would be the altar, which is called the bema, the judgment. And that would be the place where the Torah was read. And so you would have the preferential seats closest to the front. Now, we know in a Baptist church, the preferential seats are always in the back, right? But there is always up toward the front. And so this guy would come in. He looks like he's got a lot of cash. And they would say, we want, we've got a seat just for you right down there in the front. And then a guy comes in, and he's wearing some shabby clothes. He obviously doesn't have any money. He's of no benefit to the church. And so they say, you can either stand back here or, out of total disrespect, you could sit next to the footstool. That'd be nicer if you could sit on the ottoman, but they're saying, no, you can sit beside the guy who has his feet up on the ottoman. Total disrespect. And he says, this should not be because you have evil thoughts. What's happening there? The idea is, is that there's some advantage here, and it's the losing of sight of what the gospel is all about. It's not just about who will come to Christ. It's losing the fact that our focus should be on God and not on whether someone is rich or poor. Plus, it's a focus on self. This happens in churches sometimes. Somebody known to have lots of resources comes in, treated preferentially. Why? Because they can benefit the church. And we start taking our eyes off of the Lord and start putting our eyes on something else. How's it going to benefit us? Who is he writing to? Remember, these are Jewish Christians who had been scattered through the dispersia. They, they, had, they, had, they had left Jerusalem. Culture was against them in two different ways, because they were Jewish and because they were Christians. So all of them were impoverished. So they thought, you know what? When we take up a love offering, this guy could really help. Not so much with this guy. And so they're playing the role of being God and judging, saying one is more important than the other. And James writing here says that's not to be. You're either going to hold your faith or you're going to hold your prejudice, but you can't hold both in the same hands. So read the directions. Now, when you're trying to, to do something, you read the directions, and with every piece of directions, in fact, you have found, as I have found, in the culture in which we now live, it's more difficult to find the directions than the warnings, right? I mean, you look at a label, and there's all kinds of warnings, and you're trying to figure out where are the directions on this thing because there are so many warnings. And James gives us this, this warning. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? The ones who drag you into court, or are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now think about that whole idea of warnings. The guy by the name of Bob Jones wrote a book, very interesting title, Remove Child Before Folding. Subtitle, The 101 Stupidest, Silliest, and Wackiest Warning Labels Ever. So as we're heeding the warnings in, in Scripture here, we've read the directions and now we're heeding the warnings. The, the directions are don't do this, 
And then here are the warnings of what James is saying. Think about some of these actual warning labels that exist on items. A sleeping aid that warns may cause drowsiness. Well, we can only hope. A propane torch that cautions, never use when sleeping. Bandages that advise for external use only. A printer cartridge that states, do not eat toner. Who are they writing to? An iron with a label that reads, never iron clothes while they are being worn. (laughs) I, I would have never guessed that one. I mean... A three-pronged fishing lure declaring harmful if swallowed. Posted on a scooter. This product moves when used. Ovenware that warns. Ovenware will get hot when used in oven. A paper dust mask stating does not supply oxygen. House slippers. Do not eat. A child's toy badge, listen to this, a child's toy badge that states, I am two, with a warning, this is not to be used by children under three years of age. (laughs) And the last one, a toilet cleaning brush that warns, do not use for personal hygiene. Well, (laughs) obviously people don't heed warnings. And so here is James saying, heed the warning of what you are doing. Don't do this, and why should you not do this? He goes back and is talking about the rich people. Are rich people bad? No, right? Yeah, rich people aren't bad. I grew up with that idea, though. I grew up with the idea that rich people always had an angle on you. And then I met some rich people, and I wondered what their angle was. And I found they they didn't have one. It's just so interesting, the mindsets that we can have. And so here are people that are rich. It doesn't mean that they're bad. But rich people have a greater ability to exploit those who are poor. And we know that throughout the world. That's just a reality. One of the pictures that I keep in my desk, it just is so heart-wrenching. It's over, I think it was in Ethiopia. Just this emaciated man on the ground. Looks like a skeleton crawling. And this guy with influence and resources has just taken his bag of grain and is taking it away. With wealth, you have a greater opportunity to exploit. Does it mean you do? Not necessarily, no. Not at all. And so James is saying, think about it for a minute. Poor people, they don't really have any leverage in culture to exploit you. But many times, those with the resources will exploit you. Are they not the ones who oftentimes, and this is a danger, we all know this, it's a danger with money, is when we start trusting money more than we trust God. Have any of you gotten a little bit stressed over the last few weeks about the the, uh, stock market and your investments? Anybody a little bit stressed? Am I the only one? It's like I'm just watching my money, my money run through the shredder. We can think and put our trust in money and kind of forget about God. And that's what James is warning here. As you invite people in, like there's no strings attached, but be very careful because as we find in the Old Testament of 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, in which Samuel is sent out to anoint the next king, because Saul's heart had drifted away from God. And God speaks to Samuel and says, now that you have run through this these series of Jesse's sons, remember, I don't judge from the externals. I judge from the, from the heart, which is the very seat of control, the control center of our lives. So James has given us directions. Do not show favoritism towards other people. We put One person up here and another person down here. You make a judgment. You're better, you're not so good. And then you put yourself somewhere in the middle. That's what happens. And we can't forget that. We elevate someone in hopes that they will benefit us, and we put somebody below us, but we stay in the middle. 
because we're hoping to benefit on both sides. And he says, you must heed the warning that that's a bad place to be because God doesn't work that way. So utilize proper tools, and that's what he tells us in verses 8 through 13, divine love and divine judgment. These are, these are the tools that God uses to dismantle prejudice in our lives. Now, we may all think that we're not prejudiced, but when we start probing our heart, we will find that sometimes we do play favorites one over the other. And we'll find in the very core of our prejudice that there is pride. Well, notice what it says. So he says, here's what you're, here's what you're supposed to do. You better watch out. And verse 8, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law, he stepped it up a little bit. Why is he calling it the royal law? Because his brother gave it. It was in the Old Testament, and Jesus confirmed it in the New Testament. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you're doing well. Here's the resource to use in dismantling prejudice. Is love other people the way that you love yourself? Paul would note in Romans chapter 13, verse 9, that the whole law can be summarized with one rule. See, the people to whom he was writing, they, they, had, they had lived with the whole idea that, that you just have hundreds of rules to abide by. And he says, no, it can be summed up in one rule. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And when you do that, you are doing well. Divine love is something in which we treat one another as we want to be treated, as equals. In Leviticus chapter 19, that's where this passage is found, of love your neighbor as you love yourself, this divine law that God has given us. I want you to go back a couple of verses and listen to this, because this is important to hear in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. In verse 18, he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's where he's quoting from. He's quoting from his brother who quoted from Leviticus. You shall have no injustice in your court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. I think it's a really interesting statement. Because there shouldn't be partiality with the poor or the rich. Because sometimes we play preference to those who are poor in a negative way. And we don't really help them. And sometimes we play preference to those who are rich. And it is there shouldn't be any partiality on any side of the equation. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus called that what? The greatest commandment of all. Because he knew that it has so much power that when we live like that, when we treat one another as equals, prejudice cannot prevail. And that's what we desperately need in the world today. If we violate the greatest commandment to love God with all that we have, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, If we fulfill that, that is a divine, powerful tool to overcome all ills. But if we violate it, if we violate it, that is the greatest sin of all. The greatest commandment becomes the greatest sin when we violate it. I just love the fact that as we go through this book, we're reminded over and over and over who James was. Somebody whose life had been transformed. He grew up with Jesus. Jesus was his older brother. He didn't believe in Jesus until he saw him after the resurrection. You know, wonder how many times he heard his brother say, love your neighbor as you love yourself. How many times he had been on the, on the peripheral of a crowd of people as Jesus was teaching, and he would hear Jesus state these words. He would hear Jesus say, blessed are the poor in spirit, who don't trust in their resources, but they trust in Almighty God. Divine love is one of the powerful tools to dismantle prejudice, and so is divine judgment. And we think, how in the world could judgment be a tool that God would use for dismantling prejudice? Let's read it together in James chapter 2, verses 9, 9 through 13. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are uh, to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy 
triumphs over judgment. Out in the prisons yesterday, we were reminded that uh, the inmates are also known as offenders. Have they, have they broken every law? Is that why they're in jail? They, they finally got to the end and they checked all the boxes. Every law had been broken, so that's why they put them in jail? No. Why are they in jail? Because they broke at least one law. One law was enough. And sometimes we think, if I'm doing okay in these other areas and I have a little prejudice in this area, that, that's okay. Or we even look back. For some of us, we've had a very adverse experience in our past. And so we feel justified in our prejudice. And James is saying, if you live that way, you need to understand that you are breaking all of the law. You have become an offender. And you say, well, what are you saying? I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. The Scripture tells us all of the law simply does one thing. It points us to our desperate need for Christ, that we cannot be holy enough on our own. So we are all offenders. We have all broken the law. And if we have prejudice, we are breaking the law. God's law. The term that he uses there about when they gather together, I wanted to go back to that. We talked about it just a minute ago. The synagogue. In the middle of the synagogue was what was called the bema. That was the, the seat of the bema. That was the, where the law was read, and it was referred to that in part because it pronounced judgment. This was truth. This was where truth came from the word of God. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that we will all experience the bema, the judgment of God. And as James is tying all this together, he is saying, you come together and you put one person here and one person there and all of you are facing the bema right in the middle. And he's saying, be mindful that all of us at one point in our existence after this life is over, we will stand before the judgment of God and we will give an account of every single thing that we've done. Your prejudice will not be overlooked. Your favoritism will not be overlooked. If we are living knowing that that is coming, it is a tool that helps dismantle prejudice in our own life knowing that one day we will give an account of everything that we have done, including any prejudice that we might have. What a beautiful picture. Just to say, I mean, I, I love the way that, that the way the sanctuary has been designed in which the pulpit is in the middle, not because the person that speaks here is really good. Usually isn't. But the Bible is in the middle. Some of you need to know the story. And after Ike uh, hit us in 2008 and we had to redo the sanctuary in here, uh, there used to be stairs that just went straight across here. The, 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 the stage was asymmetrical. And we wanted to create more space out there. The this, this stage was huge. And so we were trying to figure out ways that, that we could make it different. And the architect, who has some different opinions than, than I would have, he said, why don't we put the pulpit over here? Kind of make it more interesting. I didn't like the idea, but the reason the pulpit is there is not because somebody made a decision when the sanctuary was being built, though it was part of the process. The decision was made centuries ago when those that were part of the Protestant Reformation said, Scripture will be the focal point of our time together. God's Word. It is the bema from which our lives are judged. And so that's why it is there. So we turn to Scripture for guidance. John Bradford lived 500 years ago during the Protestant Reformation. And he was brought on by King Edward VI to be one of the royal chaplains to help teach Reformation doctrines in England. A man of great sweet spirit, and he would regularly list his worst sins on paper and use that as an opportunity in his private prayer to repent of his sins and to celebrate the grace of God that he'd been given. He was the one who gave us the phrase that we have used probably in our own lives, but for the grace of God, there go I. And he would say that when he would see a criminal being taken to be executed. And he recognized 
There but for the grace of God go I. There is no difference between the two of us. I'm not better than him. Well, he would find out two years later after that phrase began to be used in his life that he himself was called to the executioner's stake. Queen Mary, also known as Bloody Mary, was determined to extinguish the Protestant Reformation and keep the Catholic Church prominent. So she tied him to a stake with another young man named John Leaf. And Bradford, standing at the stake to be burned, said to Leaf, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. He knew God's grace was sufficient. Yet were it not for the grace of God, that would be me. You know, being in the prison yesterday was just such a good reminder of that. Now walk through the pods and visit with guys and just recognize our roles could so easily be switched. A few circumstances, a few situations. You wouldn't believe how many of those guys talk about a moment in which they just let their anger go into a rage and it forever changed their life. All of us could be that close. And one of the things that ministers in my heart is just to look at them and say there is no difference between the two of us. I'm going to get to walk out that gate, yes, this afternoon, but there's no difference between the two of us. See, friends, we have no reason to be prejudiced. We didn't have any say in our parents, our ethnicity, or our place of birth. And those are three of the biggest issues for prejudice. Who your parents were, where your ethnicity is, and where you were born. And we didn't pick any of that. We are just here by the grace of God for the situation that we have. Our actions and attitudes of prejudice are rooted in pride. To think that we are better than someone else. But we're reminded from God's word, the most famous verse of all, John 3, 16, that we will never see or meet anyone that God loves less than us. For may all of us recognize that God loves us equally. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. But because of our sin, we are all doomed to be separated from God. But Jesus Christ can make us right with God because he is God. We can be changed for all of eternity based upon what he has done and based upon what we do, what we do with what he has done to humbly repent of our sins. Yes, maybe even today, prejudice, to turn away from our sins, surrender to him completely as Lord and Savior of our life, and follow hard after him. If you've never received Christ, I want to invite you to take that first step into relationship with him. If you need a visual for that, God has given us perfect visual relating the marriage relationship of our relationship with God. At a wedding, a man and a woman, they stand facing each other and they make a vow, a commitment to each other. That's the beginning of their marriage. It's not the end of their marriage. From then on, they go on to live their married life. When we pray to receive Christ, it's the beginning of our relationship with him. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer in just a moment. And if you would like to join me in this prayer, if it speaks to your heart, uh, I invite you to do so. And for those of us that are struggling with any type of sin, there may be prejudice in your heart. That's just the, the, that's the issue that we address today from James. Don't dismiss it too quickly. I've dismissed it too quickly in my heart for a number of reasons, a number of ideas, and just recognize that there's, there's still things churning in there. Maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to take it over to the cross and pray. Pray at the altar. Friends, I want to remind you again. Some of us won't come up here because we know that if we come up here and pray, the rest of the church is going to know we're just a bunch of bigots. But maybe that's what we need, just to be released from whatever anybody else thinks. Our deacons for this month, the triads for October, they'll be standing in the back of each one of these aisles with their wife, and you can go back and pray with them. If you'd like to become a church member, know that you are welcome to become a part of this body of believers. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you've been baptized as a demonstration of that, or you're ready to be baptized. However God is speaking to you, I want to invite you to respond in just a moment, but let's pray together as we uh, conclude this time.
God, we have heard your word and been reminded that, yes, James has taken us right into the area that says hard hats required. Speaking practical truth into our lives about issues that every one of us have to wrestle with. I pray that you would give us victory over these things and we would recognize that every time we come to church, we stand in judgment of your word. And we will either be corrected by your word or we will stand in resistance to it. To be reminded that one day we will stand before you, the incarnate word, and you will judge every thought and deed. God, may we be found blameless because of what you have done for us. Anyone listening now, whether online or in this room, that has never received Christ, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would begin a relationship with you in which they would pray a prayer similar to this. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have, and I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. God, thank you for this church body that to the best of my knowledge invites and embraces everyone into this fellowship regardless of who they are or where they've come from. I pray that you would help us to continue to excel in that. Lord, that you would point out the sin within our lives individually and collectively as a church that we, be, that we would be repentant of it. In your name we ask. Amen. Love you all. Thanks for listening. Let's stand together and respond to God. One day the grave could conceal him no longer. One day the stone rolled away from the door. Then he arose over death he had conquered. Now is ascended my Lord evermore. Death could not hold him. Amen. Pick up a shoebox on the way out. Have a great week.